Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Agatsu Physical Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Mosen, and with me today is my special guest, Tyson Larone. Now, for before we get into it, Tyson, we start. We got a lot of stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about lifting heavy shit. Uh, we're of course going to talk about the fights last night because there's no way we can, you know, have a conversation. Two jujitsu guys can't have a conversation and not talk about that that insanity. Um, and uh, we're going to, of course, talk about lifting and uh, Gatsu and everything. So first, welcome, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, man, it's a pleasure. I've been wanting to get you on the show for a long time. Uh, a lot of Agatsu students, a lot of people in the Agatsu family, they either have trained with you or they know of you. And in particular, um, a lot of them hear about you at their level one or when they're talking to me about preparing for their level two. And they're like, oh, you know, the the pull-up requirement is so hard. It's, it's, it's too strict, man. And, you know, and I always tell them, I'm like, you know, uh, Tyson at his level two um, did something like 22 dead hang, you know, chest to bar pull-ups at a height of, I don't know, what do we use? What are you, six foot four, six foot five? Around that, yeah, six yeah. four. And, you know, so I'm like, uh, thankfully nobody gave him that email that said it's hard for tall guys to do pull-ups. So, um, you know, I tell them, what's your excuse <laughs> if you can't get it and, and he could? <laughs> Well, it was kind of funny because what actually happened is I completely missed the part of the email that you sent out to kind of uh, confirm our registration for the level two that said you could average out to 75%. Yeah. So you were just like, I should, I should get a hundred and everything. Yeah. I actually thought we had to get a hundred percent in everything to pass the test. That's better. Just do that. (laughs) So, all right. So before let's, let's go back to the beginning. Like I said, a lot of the guys, people know you as, you know, a strong guy and a guy who's into physical culture and a lot of old school training and, and, you know, interesting Russian training methods, but how did things start in physical culture for you? Were you athletic as a kid? Uh, Yeah, actually it started when I was about five. I tried a couple other sports, like my brother was really into hockey. I never got into hockey. You're, my, you're muting your mic slightly with whatever you just did. There we go. Oh, there we go. Now you're better. Yeah, was, so your brother was into hockey and you, when my, you were like five years old? was into hockey. Yeah, I never really got into hockey. It was just kind of weird for an Alberta kid. But I tried a couple of team sports and I just hated them. Uh, even, as a, even as a kid, I never really got into, the, I, I never really got into team sports because I always hated the idea that I could play well, but my team could still suck. Or I could play poorly and my team would still win. Yeah. I always, I was always kind of drawn to individual sports for that reason. So I started with swimming, actually. Started with was, swimming. That's that, that's funny for anybody who sees you now, and <laughs> that's hard to imagine. You know, you you moving soup not gracefully. I have no problem imagining, but like a bullet through the water. I don't know, man. That's a that's a yeah. big bullet. Although in Jurassic Park, that huge thing swam very fast. <laughs> so just before it had that incredibly unnecessary drawn out death scene with that assistant that was just trying to do her job yeah well so, okay so it's it's not that uh out of the question for me to imagine it so all right so you started with swimming when you were you a competitive swimmer uh yes i i swam i swam for about uh, 10 years and i was actually pretty good at it when i was when i was 13 my best event was the 200 meter butterfly which will sound like nothing to people who don't actually know anything about swimming but uh, I was I was primarily a 200 meter butterfly that was my specialty and uh, when I was 13 I think I was ranked about second in Canada for that and and it was uh, that's actually one of the craziest things I actually I was talking to somebody about how crazy the the expectations for youth athletics have moved on 
And uh, just for kicks, I, I checked the, the current rankings to see where that time would put me today. Right. And uh, the time that ranked me second in Canada when I was 13 would barely break the top 50 today. Wow. <laughs> That was kind. Of, that was kind of a trip, but uh, that was that was my first uh, real athletic love was swimming, and I, I I thankfully had a really well educated coach who uh, got us into uh, some weightlifting and stuff as a part of swimming, which was not the norm back then. Sure. Uh, pretty much everybody else uh, was just swimming on top of swimming to get better at swimming. So uh, he was he was good for uh, introducing me to some alternate methods of training, but it wasn't really until I quit swimming around 15 that I got into weightlifting and, and especially kettlebells in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I was 15, I, I quit swimming mainly just cause I was kind of burnt out on it. Uh, it's, it's not easy when you're, when you're uh, 15 years old to keep up a schedule of, you know, 20 to 25 hours in the pool plus weightlifting plus running. Uh, if you don't love the sport the way you used to. Yeah. So, uh, as soon as I started to lose a little bit of the love for the sport, I just, I just couldn't handle the schedule anymore. But then I had this, you know, 20 hour hole in my life that I decided to fill with martial arts instead. Uh, so that's, that's when I made the transition to martial arts. I didn't really take any time off at all. I went right from swimming to martial arts and, and, uh, dove right in. What was so the I, first martial art you studied? Uh, the first martial arts I studied were, uh, Kyokushin Karate and, uh, Keto Ryu Jujutsu, which is a, a Japanese style of, of, uh, of Jujutsu, obviously. I did those until I was about 18 or 19. And, uh, that's when I switched to, uh, that's when I switched to Brazilian Jujutsu and, uh, Muay Thai under, uh, the tutelage of, uh, Mike Yakulik here in Edmonton. And, uh, that's also when I, uh, met you the first time. I think I was 18 when I took the, the level one course with you in Calgary. Uh, I'd been training for kettlebells with kettlebells for a little bit before that, a uh, few years. Uh, but, um, yeah, it was, that was about the, the time that I started doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and met you for the first time. So that was a huge turning point for me. How did you find kettlebells? Like, how did you stumble onto that? Because back then, especially that's still going back like a ways, it would have been one of the first courses that I gave, probably one of the yeah. first courses out West. So, um, the vast majority of, you know, people that you would have known in Alberta would have no idea what a kettlebell was. And you probably at that point couldn't buy one in a store. And I would say it would be really hard to have met anyone who had ever seen one in person probably. Yeah. I, I, I got really lucky. Uh, there was this, uh, at, at Kinsman sports center, which is the, the big gym here in town, uh, for where I, where I did most of my swimming training. There was, uh, this, there's the kind of big shiny gym upstairs. And then there used to be, I don't think it's there anymore, but there used to be this, this, uh, uh this, uh, nasty gym downstairs that had mm-hmm. all the old kind of, uh, crappy equipment. That yeah. They, that no one wanted. Exactly. But it was all my favorite equipment. And that's where we used to lift weights when I was a swimmer. So I was, I was training down there and there was this other guy training in there that was uh, a Highland games competitor, I think. And, and uh, he introduced me to kettlebells because he kind of brought some of his own to train with. Of course, at, at that time, like, like you say, there was, there wasn't really much out there as far as, uh, as far as kettlebell um, training methods or educational materials or anything like that. Your DVDs were out there. I got your, uh, I think the second wind DVD. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I got your second wind DVD. I had a, a Mike Maller manual because he was, he was putting out some stuff back yeah. then. 
Uh, and uh, I think Dave Belomo, like the Max Kettlebell stuff, I think I got into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there wasn't a lot out there. Most people had never heard of a kettlebell. Like you say, there was, there was only one store in Edmonton that had just started selling them. And of course, being an idiot, I got, uh, I got a, a, my first two kettlebells that I got for myself were a 50 pounder, which I figured I'd use for the easy stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, as a nice, as a nice starting weight. And an 80 pounder, which I figured I would use for the, for the, for the harder stuff. Yeah. Well, so, <laughs> as, as one does. So you got that everybody? Yeah. Are you taking notes? So you want to start off with a 50 and then you want to get yeah. something like an 80 or an 80 well, for the slightly well, harder. Course, yeah. I, I, I joke at courses about the kind of old school Russian mentality. It's like, well, you know, how do I learn how to jerk? Okay. Well, first you start with strict pressing. Yeah. And then you go up to a kettlebell that you can't possibly strict press. And that's how you'll learn how to push press. Cause if you got it up, then you push pressed it and then you <laughs> yeah. keep on going heavier and heavier until you get to a kettlebell that you can't push press. And then, you know, you push jerked it if you, if it got up at all. And that's, yeah, it's, I mean, like, this is very simple, you know, yeah. I like that simplicity is genius and that's a simple way to, uh, you know, figure out the next, uh, logical progression. Just, just keep adding weight. <laughs> yeah. So with, with, without, without knowing that that was a thing, I kind of trained myself that way in my parents' garage for a long time. And so you were using, were you using the kettlebells and everything kind of like what you had been taught with your swimming coach as an assistance uh, to your training. So now you were in martial arts and so yeah. you wanted something to assist your, what you were trying to accomplish with martial arts. Is that how you came to kind of the kettlebells and the rest of the physical culture stuff? A hundred percent. Yeah. It's because uh, what I was doing for, uh, I had a pretty packed schedule for martial arts. I was training, of course, this was when I was a kid and didn't have a real job or any responsibilities yet. So I was training uh, you know, uh, five to seven days a week, usually at least twice a day during the week. Uh, and I would usually do my kettlebell training earlier in the, earlier in the day mm -hmm. and becoming, becoming a trainer and teaching other people, uh, kind of happened organically. It, it wasn't really uh, a plan for me so much as, uh, there'd be other jujitsu guys coming in, early around the time I was coming in to do my kettlebell workouts and mm -hmm. they started uh, joining me for my workouts. And of course I, I would, I would kind of show them what I was doing and I'd always had a, a passion for, for teaching other people. And, and uh, I found that I really enjoyed showing them, uh, showing them through the movements and breaking down what mistakes they might be making and stuff like that. And it just kind of grew from there until I had my own classes and started taking on clients and uh, did the whole, kind of a personal training grind for a while. Um, but yeah, that's the, the martial arts uh, side of things was definitely the, the main driving uh, factor for, for why I got so deep into the kettlebell stuff. Cause that just seemed like a perfect fit for it. Uh, I, I'd done some more traditional weightlifting for the swimming part of things, mm -hmm. but uh, when it came to uh, the kind of, well, what would, what would be known as, as dynamic correspondence, like actual carryover from what I was doing with the weights to what I was doing on the mats. Uh, I could see martial arts techniques in what I was doing with the kettlebells. Mm -hmm. And I, and I'd, uh, I'd had a hard time uh, making that connection with the other kinds of weightlifting I was doing at the time. Yeah. Especially, I mean, conventional, like conventional wisdom, like really old school wisdom was, you know, the martial artists don't lift weights because if they start lifting weights, they're going to slow themselves down. But it's not really a, a problem <laughs> of the weights. It's a problem of how people are using the weights, you know? So uh, exactly. And, and, uh, the, and as I got into powerlifting, which came a little bit later, 
really, I got into powerlifting primarily because I wanted to go up a few weight divisions. I was, uh, when I was uh, fighting in MMA, I only fought in MMA a couple of times uh, before I I uh, started taking it more seriously. And then I, I fell, because uh, I, I got into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu when Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu culture was synonymous with MMA culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at that At that time, uh, anybody like if you went to a jiu-jitsu tournament or a submission wrestling tournament or whatever it was 90 percent of the people there would be uh mma fighters or at least involved in the mma side of things yeah they were yeah. using sports jiu-jitsu uh, to get better for actual fights for either exactly. mma or just fighting in general yeah and and like most people that kind of grew up on the the first season of ultimate fighter i I wanted to be a fighter too. And that's, that's the primary reason I started doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. But then I just, I fell in love with the component martial arts of Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu themselves and never fought in MMA again, never really had the interest. But, Mm -hmm. uh, I was, but at the time I was competing, uh, like 167 pounds. So you remember we had 167. That's like, Oh yeah. You were, you were tall. Uh, But the, uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You were a very different beast at that uh, at that size. Uh, I think I think when I did my yeah I uh, I uh, I think I had just gotten into lifting with the barbell a bit more regularly when I did my level two with you in Toronto. Yeah, uh, I think I was about twenty or twenty one, and uh, I I basically come to the realization about that time that while I was being ripped and having kind of an endless gas tank. I always, I also found that having a, as large a frame as I did, but being as light as I was, I was getting injured really easily and I was getting sick really easily. I wasn't recovering as well as I could be. And I, I kind of made the decision that, you know, even if it was a bit of a setback at first, yeah, I would probably be healthier in the long run and, and perform better in the long run in, uh, in higher weight divisions. So I just kind of started eating like it was a full-time job. And, and lifting more often with the bar, a bit like the pure conditioning workouts with the kettlebells. And I went from 167 to 204 in about four months, I think. Wow. That was uh, a lot of triple baconators. But, uh, <laughs> That's good. I, I like, it, I like it, it full was, commitment was, to anything, you know, even if it is eating. So oh, we're all in, you know. It was it, – it was gross. I like I I actually I, like right now I weigh about 248 pounds, and I don't have to eat as much to maintain 248 pounds as I used to have to eat to get to 204. Wow. Like I just uh, but my my body was so my body was so set into that uh, lighter weight, and my metabolism was running on on overspeed all the time. So I I just had to I had to go so extreme start eating you know eight ten thousand calories a day sometimes on training days to just break through that initial plateau so uh, but yeah once once i actually got to that heavier weight and stabilized i i did feel better but i just fell in love with the barbell and even though even though initially it was just to go up a few weight divisions i just what fell was in it love about the barbell, barbell I fell in love with that kind of training that uh, you really fell in love with well I think it was mainly because I was starting to come into a better understanding at that time in my, in my really early twenties of the importance of maximal strength. And that was something that uh, I had come kind of come to the realization that I couldn't get with kettlebells. I was, I was, uh, I was trying to kind of go out of my way to do, 
you know, huge deficits on kettlebell deadlifts and stuff like that, just to try to make the weights feel as heavy as I possibly could to get those same benefits. Yeah. And I, I just started to realize that, you know, if, if maximal strength is the goal, then eventually I'm going to have to get my hands on a barbell. Yeah. That's the thing. I think also, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I think, you know, when it comes to kettlebell and obviously, you know, like you're, you're a level two and uh, kettlebell instructor under Agatsu, which is no small feat. And also one of the senior instructors, one of the, you know, few, one of the handful around the world. Uh, so obviously we love kettle, we love kettlebells. Um, kettlebell, kettlebells are an incredible tool, but unfortunately in marketing, some, some people and some companies will market it as, you know, uh, all kinds of different things. And one of the things that, you know, was early, uh, early in marketing, especially from the United States was, you know, Hey, this is the only thing you'll ever need you know it's um yeah. it's the secret and of I, you know, definitely, I definitely felt that for a while yeah yeah <laughs> right it's a secret yeah. weapon it will make you an elite super soldier you will be incredible jumping buildings in a single bound uh the, the fat will jump screaming from your body and crying running down the street and all that other great bullshit um it's a great strength endurance tool but you know, the heaviest kettlebell you're ever going to see is uh, a baby compared to what you could load uh, for a barbell. For sure. And, and the, and well, the funny thing about all those Spetsnaz guys is they all squat and deadlift with barbells too. Yeah. And they also but, hit uh, the neck deck. I mean, when I was in Russia, I, I never saw <laughs> other than the Russians we were there training with who did kettlebell squat, all the Russians in the actual gym, the one, the ones that are in the gym were deadlifting they were lifting barbells. They were hitting the pec deck. They got a new pec deck yep. in I think, that week. So they were like super jazzed oh. about their pec deck. And, uh, you know, <laughs> they, were, they were doing like, you know, uh, a mix of either power. Some guys were doing power lifting and some guys were just like, you know, holy crap, it's, it's the 80s and uh, <laughs> we're, we're blasting our pecs. <laughs> so, you know, I, I love it. It's, it's, it's really funny when you get to live and see the disconnect between what some people's marketing fairy tales are and what the reality is, you know? Yeah, and it's, and it's, um, it's unfortunate because uh, it, it, do, it, it not only limits you, but it also limits the athletes that you train. I, I mean, I was tra- my specialty is in youth athletics. And even when you're training with, you know, somebody who's 15 or 16 years old, it doesn't take long before you get to the point where you don't have a kettlebell heavy enough that they can't deadlift it for five reps. Yeah. And you know, it's a great if, tool. It's, I think like the kettlebell deadlift and all these things, they're such great tools. Like it's a great place for people to start with a lot of different movements. Um, it's a great uh, yeah. place for people to continue as well, because as a strength endurance tool, it's sick. It's incredible. Oh yeah. Um, but it, it, like anything else, it is not the only thing, right? It fills a void in your training. And so what I'm hearing from, from you is you were using that and getting great results with, you know, your strength endurance and your baseline strength must've, you know, really improved with the kettlebell. Um, but then you were realizing there were still some voids. Yes. And, uh, I found, Yes. And I, and, and what I found was that cause uh, I've always been, uh, uh, quick to tell people that the, the strength of the, of the kettlebell as a tool is in its, uh, well-roundedness mm-hmm. that if you're, if you're going to choose one tool to kind of do the most things for most people, then the kettlebell is, is, uh, what I believe that tool to be, but it's, it's still, uh, when it comes to maximal strength with the exception of, overhead press mm-hmm. like a lot of people 
well, a lot of people, even if they train hard, are, are uh, going to have a hard time pressing a 48 kilo kettlebell in their lifetime. Yeah. But the, uh, but when it comes to your, when it comes to lower body lifts, especially, uh, what I found was that the, the more I pushed the, the basic barbell lifts, like the squat and the, and the, uh, bench press and the deadlift, I found that when I pushed those up, it would, uh, actually help what I was doing with the kettlebell. But yeah. what I was, what I was doing with the kettlebell wouldn't necessarily help me with the barbell lifts, except for when I, when I kind of started to implement it more with a more well, it's like, yeah, it's like the desert island thing. Like, look, if I'm going off the, you know, the ship and there's only one, one weight for some reason I'm going to be able to have, I'd love to have a kettlebell on a desert island. Uh, you know, that would keep me entertained. It would keep me in shape. I could do some great circuits. Uh, you know, I could flip them around. I could bust open coconuts. Yep. There's a lot of great stuff having, if I, <laughs> just, if I, if I was stuck with one tool, but I'm not on a desert island, I'm not stuck with one tool. And that's why, you know, like exactly. cats who HQ's got kettlebells and barbells and maces and clubs and cause they all fill a void. Um, now, so when you started, yeah. you started kind of doing, I guess, uh, you know, kind of conventional power lifting. And, um, mm -hmm. I, I imagine like most people, you got into power lifting cause power lifting was, uh, in a sense, it's a, got an easier learning curve than going to the Olympic lifts, which have become so popular. Yeah. And the, the, the thing that, uh, really gets me about, uh, well, because people kind of uh, people that are really good at Olympic lifting, yeah, tend to do pretty much nothing but Olympic lifting. Yep. And uh, I I tried getting into Olympic lifting. I actually uh, I remember at your I don't remember yeah, officially calling it. Uh, it was the first one where you had. Yeah, because yeah, I, I presented on some kettlebell complexes, and you had, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, and you had uh, Pierre Auger there, and uh, yeah. he did a, a he did a huge workshop on on Olympic lifting, uh, and I was really excited for that. I was like, okay, I'm going to get into these Olympic lifts. I'm going to start doing snatches and cleans and and yeah. stuff like that. And, uh, after working with Pierre Auger for about three or four hours, all it told me was that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm probably never going to actually be able to dedicate the time yeah. and energy that it would take to be any good at this stuff. Well, you're, uh, you're smarter than me. It took me longer than that to figure that out. I, uh, I learned the Olympic lifts. I trained with a few different coaches. Um, I brought it back to, you know, Agatsu. I was training, uh, snatch, clean and jerk, everything. And I really enjoyed it. I, I do love the Olympic lifts. Um, but I came mm -hmm. to the realization slower than you, but I eventually came to the same conclusion was the Olympic lifts, in my opinion, don't make sense for a generalist. If you're really a generalist, it takes too much time for the average person um, to get good at this for what it gives you in return. And it, because time is so valuable and there's so little of it for the average person yeah. for their training. You know, what do I really want? It's like, well, sure. I want the barbell for the, like you said, the max strength, right? And if I want it for max strength, I want to increase my strength. There are easier ways to do it. To take the average man and get him to snatch 50 kilos is not a big deal. Like a, not the average reasonably fit guy. That's, that's not a huge problem. Yeah. But you take that same guy and get him to snatch 75 kilos and, the amount of time you have to invest in that is 
time and you know it's in, in a sense it's training currency that you're taking away from all the other things that he could be doing or she could be doing and for Absolutely. me I was like man it, it's not worth it yeah and it's and uh, that's part of the reason why I have a hard time uh, when I hear about uh, barbell Olympic lifting being used for non-strength athletes yeah uh, to give you a good, to give you a good example the the power clean Mm-hmm. is is uh, hugely emphasized in, in the training programs for football players. Unfortunately, uh, these are football players who have to deal with, who have to do practices and games and other weightlifting. They have to get together and watch film. Uh, these guys, most of them are in school. I mean, mm-hmm. most, uh, until they're, until they're professionals, these, these, uh, these are kids that are still have to go to school. And, uh, again, the, the amount of time that they would have to dedicate to actually be good enough at these lifts to bring out their potential and, and, uh, and draw out the maximum benefit of the lift. Yeah. They just will, they're just never going to dedicate that amount of time to it because they're football players. They're not Olympic lifters. Yeah. Uh, and then of course there's, uh, the uh, mobility issues. A lot of, a lot of people injure their wrists because because they they're just kind of handed a training program that says okay do power cleans up to like a heavy triple they've never done power cleans before and they don't have anywhere near the mobility to actually get into the receiving position for the clean properly and uh, and they're trying to throw up these weights and uh, and they're and they're hurting their wrists and it's and uh, again like it, it takes an Olympic lifter a while to kind of groove the technique as well as trip uh, up their own mobility and and uh, balance and coordination to be able to do the lift safely enough to stress their muscles to the max. I mean, that's the reality. It's, it's not even about safety. It's also about performance. You have to do a certain amount of uh, work on these lifts just to get good enough at them to see how strong you are. Yeah. And then you start working on getting stronger. But if you, if you never dedicate enough time, even to get to that first part, then yeah, you're doing power cleans, but your your uh, body is actually likely strong enough to clean, you know, forty or fifty percent more than you're cleaning. But you'll never break through that technical wall to actually test yourself. Right. So if you can, if you could do, uh, if you could accomplish a benefit with, uh, with a tool that's got a you know not so steep a learning curve, like when it comes to cleans. Uh, you can use kettlebells for cleans. Uh, even if you want to use a, de- even if you want to use a deadlift, you could, or, or sorry, even if you want to use a barbell, you could do something like a, a clean pull that doesn't have uh, the receiving position. And you're still going to be moving the bar explosively as, as long as you're moving it at roughly the same velocity. You're going to get very similar benefits. So there's there's simpler tools that could be used to achieve the same results in a generalist. If you want to be an Olympic lifter, man, I've, I have so much respect for Olympic lifters. Like when I saw Hussein Razazadeh. Uh, with his world record, I think it was about a 580, 585 pound cleaner jerk. That's one of the most incredible things I've ever seen a human being do. But, man, he started when he was like four. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, <laughs> and, it's, and, it's a little, uh, I'm, I'm a little past that. I don't, I don't, I think I missed my window for uh, being a great Olympic lifter. Yeah, he, yeah. Well, in the, in the former Soviet Union, they, they used to say that for a sport like Olympic weightlifting, uh, they essentially wanted to get people started when they were four or five. And they would be, and they would be, uh, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be getting into strength training in earnest until they went through puberty and were kind of getting to that kind of 15, 16 range. But they basically expected that you would start when you were a little kid, yeah. uh, work, work on your, work on your general physical preparedness, 
yeah. and, and, uh, and perfect technique until you're about 15 years old. And then once you were 15 years old and you'd spent 10 years perfecting the technique, now there's, there's nothing, but there's nothing else to do with your technique. You, so you can focus from when you're 15 to when you hit your physical prime, which is roughly, you know, 24, 25 for these guys. Yeah. So they, they spend about 10 years from when they're five to when they're 15 perfecting technique and working on their general physical preparedness. And then they spend from 15 to 25 just getting strong as hell. And that, that was kind of their, their, their model for, 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 uh, for, by the time they're they're 25. We're getting a little lag. I'm thinking I might try to drop the video portion uh, because we're videoing just so we can see each other. Um, Let me just see if that picks up uh, the lag. Okay. So there we go. Yep. Well, I dropped out mine. Hopefully that will make it a little bit better. So, um, you know, like you mentioned the Russians, you mentioned studying Russian training. I know that you, you spent a lot of time studying different training methods. And I'm wondering what pushed you kind of further down that rabbit hole because you get it. You, you're training with the kettlebells. You're, you were always really studious about technique and, and trying to do things well and being technical, being efficient. And uh, I imagine also that comes from, you know, the swimming background and the martial arts background because, you know, that, that's a great place to get indoctrinated both of those with you know the importance of proper technique uh once you get to the you Absolutely. know olympic lifting and powerlifting, a lot of people i mean those techniques those kind of lifts they can be very deep you can spend a lot of time like really peeling layers back but let's be honest most people don't they're like all right they learn how to do a bench they learn how to squat and uh you know they're like okay that's good enough now i just got to keep putting more weight on it what drove you to really research and dive into all of these different uh, things that you have. Um, was it for pla- busting plateaus that you yourself were hitting, or was it from what you were, you know, you were sharing with, uh, you know, your training partners and trying to find ways to help them? I, uh, it's a, it's a bit of both. Although it sounds like a cop out. Uh, the, <laughs> I, I always, uh, what I like to say is that I'm, I'm blessed with interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if uh, I, even if what I'm doing seems to be working well, I I've never I, I've never really hit that, that state where it's like okay, well, what I'm doing is working, so I've got it all figured out. Right. So I'm just gonna I'm just gonna stop here and uh, be happy with the results I have. I'm uh, thankfully I've I've always been just uh, naturally driven without having to put too much effort into it uh, to kind of always seek out better and better ways to do things. And uh, I've always kind of held this belief that uh, if you want to, if you want to be the best at something or at least make your best run at being the best at something, you should look at the people who were not only the best in the world, but consistently the best in the world and, and see what they do. But uh, beyond that, see what they started with. Because uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people make this kind of mistake where they look at what the people who are the best in the world are doing and they say, okay, well, I'm just going to do that. Mm. Well, you're, you're, looking at, you're looking at that completely out of context. You know, what, what guys are doing to get from an 800-pound squat to a 900-pound squat is probably not what they did to get from a 300-pound squat to a 400-pound squat. Yeah, that's so. Huge. That's a big. It, it, you're right. Yeah, that's not, a big difference. People are jumping in and looking at it, you know 
these these awesome athletes and uh, what their training programs are, but it's so late in those athletes' development. Yeah, and it's so highly individualized as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and you see this in martial arts as well. I mean, people people say, "Oh, I want to box like Roy Jones Jr." Well, I'm sorry, man. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to put a rain on your parade, but you should not be Roy Jones Jr. to learn how to box. Yeah. Like, like Roy Jones Jr. did not start out doing what Jones Jr. was doing. So no. if you took this, hold your hand behind your back and, uh, and stick your chin out and dare the guy to hit you because you know that you're so lightning quick that you can see his punch come and knock him to counter punch. Like it, it, every, everything you see the, the best in the world do is out of context. So thankfully I, I always kind of stood that. And, and uh, so I, I always said, okay, if I want to do this, I'm going to look at what the best in the world do. And I'm going to say, okay, I've got that. I, I can see what they are doing. Now I want to see how they started and who taught them. So those are kind of the, the, the three things that I look for. This mm-hmm. is a guy that is, that's the best in the world. I want to know what he does. I want to know how he got started, uh, kind of what laid the foundation for what he did later and mm-hmm. who taught him. And if you, and if you look at, uh, at the world of, of weightlifting and athletics and, 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 uh, and sport in general, uh, the Soviet Union is, is really a gold mine for making those connections between, okay, these are the sorts of methods and programs and techniques that uh, not only produce the best results, but also the most consistent results. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's, that's really what interested me is that uh, this wasn't just like a flare up where there was kind of one Soviet weightlifting champion that was just better than everybody else. It was, no, these guys, these guys took home, uh, this, these guys took home the most medals in, in six of eight Olympic games that they participated in. Now somebody listening. Actually, to I was, yeah, that's because they were all on drugs. So we can uh, quickly address that. Um, everyone is on drugs uh, in the Olympics, yeah. except for the people that lose. The ones well, that lose, their country couldn't afford drugs, and uh, all the other ones uh, are on drugs. Uh, they're just in various stages of maybe getting caught. Well, and uh, I've I've had a lot of conversations about steroids over the years because uh, there's there's a lot of people, especially like because uh, Lance Armstrong is still one of my heroes personally, uh, and uh, and and other people like him that have kind of been busted in in in, uh, in a very public way for for taking steroids, and uh, it's it, what the way that I like to explain it uh, so that it kind of makes sense is that there's there's essentially three factors that go into creating an athlete, right? And one is, one is just uh, genetic factors, right? Like what you're born with, you know, your, your breakdown of your breakdown of muscle fibers, your, uh, the, where your muscular attachments are, your bones, your height, all that kind of stuff. Like mm-hmm. what you're, your base is your, your starter pack. Right. And, uh, and that, and that plays a big role, especially when it comes to sports like sprinting or high jumping or something like that. Uh, everybody can be more explosive than they are. And I get really angry when people say, "Oh well, um, you know, I'll I'll never I'll never be an Olympic high jumper, so why bother doing box jumps at all?" It's like, okay, well, the 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 next step uh, above you is not Olympic high jumper. 
Yeah, exactly. There's some room. <laughs> there's some room before yeah, that happens. We could make some improvements. There's 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 some there's some achievable middle ground here. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, that's like saying I'm not going to do jujitsu because I'm I'm too old to be a mundial champion. First of all, you don't know exactly. if you're you know if that's exactly. really a goal. You could do that at any time, but yeah. also um, somewhere between world champion and just guy who's thoroughly enjoying himself, uh, you know, training every week. Yeah, yeah. nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah, you could be, you could, you could, uh, you could have a lot of fun in that middle ground. But you could just be the best uh, guy in your block, and that might be okay. Exactly. So you know, everybody can be more explosive than they are. There's, there's not really any getting around that the person setting, a, the person getting a gold medal for high jump at the Olympics, get a gold medal at the high jump at the Olympics. So there's genetic factors that that label. Uh, then there's uh, the factors that uh, that you control, like nutrition and training methods, and uh, sleep and supplementation, and all these kinds of things that that anybody can do. Yep. And uh, and and you know that's the that's kind of the hard work side of things, right? This the, these are the things that are that anybody can do as long as they're willing to do them. Yeah. Uh, and then there's and then there's the artificial factors, you know, things like steroids or or even things that people don't really think of, like laser eye surgery. Uh, anything that's kind of above and beyond the genetic factors and, and the environmental factors like training that uh, that help you play your sport. And uh, what I always say is that, you know, for somebody that's that's an amateur, uh, you can you can have one of those three things and be successful. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a kid, a kid in high school that doesn't really train very hard and doesn't take steroids, but has amazing genetics, can still do pretty well in high school, right? Uh, at a at a kind of entry level professional level, mm-hmm. you you see some you see a lot of people that have kind of two out of three. You know, they they've got amazing genetics and they work really hard, but they don't take steroids. They can still be successful at an entry level professional level, uh, or even kind of a, up to a mid level. Or maybe they they work really hard, don't have great genetics, but there's those artificial factors. Uh, but it, when you're talking about like the top one percent of the top one percent, mm-hmm. uh, usually you're going to see all three of those factors. Yeah. You know these these are the kind of people that, yeah, they might be taking something, but they also have amazing genetics and they work harder than everybody else. Yeah, like the, the the people that comment on YouTube, it's like, well, you know, give me a bike and all those steroids, and I could climb mountains like Lance Armstrong. No, you couldn't. Ridiculous. No, it could, there was there was a whole peloton full of guys that were taking all the same drugs, and they yeah, still, he still lost. was the best out of everybody who was on drugs. Yeah. So, so it, I mean, the only thing uh, about that is, you know, I I still think, yeah, he was he was a champion because just what I said, he beat all the other people that were also on drugs. So in a way it was a very fair playing field. Um, The only thing is he's a scumbag for suing people and everything that were accusing him of cheating. I mean, the truth (laughs) is you were cheating and then you went after people and tried to ruin them and ruin their reputations for calling you out on the thing you were doing. So yeah, he's an asshole. There's that. There's there's that. I can see that. um, yeah, at the same time, uh, yeah, you know, he won. And like you said, you can give me all those steroids and put me on a bicycle. And uh, no, nothing, nothing near what the, that guy can do. That's not yeah, even in the same hemisphere. For sure. And so when it comes to the Soviet Union, of course, there's the steroid conversation. And, and that's definitely that's definitely a part of it. But ever since the ever since the early 60s, uh, there, there have been steroids in sports uh, coming from every country. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the main difference, I think, with the Soviet Union that really lended itself to their long term success 
was how they kind of uh, kind of uh, took uh, took all athletics in under sponsored program for athletics was insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, you had uh, number one had a, a, a government that was basically giving physical culture a life on a mm-hmm. scale that I don't think has ever been replicated or had before then. Uh, they they essentially had a kind of a pyramid model where they figured the more people at the bottom of the pyramid that are getting into athletics and training hard and, and eating right and stuff like that, the more people that are going to show promise in certain sports and the more people that are going to kind of rise to the top and that we're going to be able to put out there to get medals for us. So they, they kind of uh, created this culture where uh, taking care of yourself and lifting weights and, and becoming a sportsman and participating in, in these different activities was part of what it meant to be a good communist. So they, it, it, that's, that's a big part of it is, is the culture they created where they were just derived from this huge foundation of all these different people from all walks of life. Right. That were all that were all trying to become involved in physical culture. So it makes a lot of, it makes it a lot easier to notice the ones that have promise, and then and then kind of steer them in the right direction. Uh, the other thing is that because everything was under one roof and under one kind of program, they had all the best minds in uh, they had all the best minds with unlimited resources working on all these issues. So it was it was impossible for any kind of uh, fitness myth to exist, right? And they were very diligent, and still are very diligent about kind of testing and and tracking. And you know, there's a a wealth of Russian research and so, Soviet research that people can dive into oh, yeah. and if they can That's, a get a translation of it and b somehow <laughs> not, not die of boredom reading the first paragraph. Oh, you're starting to break up a little bit. Yeah, we have a little bit of a connection issue. Hopefully, it's not that. Hopefully, it's not that bad. Sorry for anybody uh, listening, but uh, you know, it's it's the interweb, and it's not uh, always perfect. Um, but yeah, like uh, some of the material or uh, much of the material is so dry. I mean, it's it's brutally oh, dry. God. It's oh, it's uh, like I'll be I'll be reading uh, I'll be reading a a, a particular. Uh, study or something like that and i'll just have to call my wife downstairs to to tell her this this one line because i found it so hilarious uh but that's part of the reason why a lot of these training methods haven't become widespread in north american culture it's it's not that this stuff isn't available because it's Mm -hmm. been available it's been available for decades uh all these texts have been have been uh, painstakingly translated and made available on on uh on the web and everything for for decades but the the problem is that these kinds of source materials, uh, they were never written to be published and sent out there for people to enjoy. Right. A lot of these source material, a lot of these source materials were written by Soviet sports scientists for other Soviet sports scientists. So it was, it was just a, it was a sharing of information among people who were all interested in the same thing and working in the same field. So yeah. there's, there's uh, very little, there's very little attention being paid to how it reads. So you're, you're just looking at these endless blocks of text and uh, they kind of take a few sentences to get around to saying something that could be very, that could be said very simply. And uh, personally, I really enjoy it. I, I find that the, <laughs> I find the writing style really uh, entertaining, which I guess is another 
thing I have going for me. But I, I think that's a big reason why these these sorts of things weren't uh, haven't been widespread in North America. It's not that well, the information you it, you, is. What I like is you can distill all of the you know the the best qualities of that information that content into um, like you said you you like it so you kind of poke fun at how dry and crazy <laughs> a study might be. But then at the same time, you oh, yeah. get down to the heart of it and you go, look, this is, this is the awesome thing that we have learned from this crazy thing that they did or this really boring, you know, obscure study is, hey, look, uh, you know, guys figured this out. And uh, then people go, okay, so without, you know, myself, without having to sit down and sift through all of that, I get to hear it told to me in a way where it's interesting, it's exciting, and it's like, oh, okay, that's what all that crazy information is. Otherwise, <laughs> it feels like you're sitting down. And to me, it's just like, if you look at that material, for anybody who hasn't, just imagine that for some reason, you got a vacuum cleaner or a computer uh, from a Latvian company. If you're from Latvia, sorry, I don't know anything that popped into my head because it would sound kind of funny. Um, but, or, you know, Ukraine, how's that? You can't get pissy if you're from Ukraine because my family's from there too. So, you know, you got a Ukrainian vacuum cleaner and it's only with Ukrainian instructions and then uh, a little bit of English. And the English is, you know, from some Ukrainian guy whose job it is. He sits in a gray, dark room and writes technical manuals for vacuum cleaners. Um, so imagine trying to learn weightlifting from him. You know, <laughs> it's, you might have, great, <laughs> man, you got to be dedicated to try and <laughs> listen to what he's got to say. So, you know, with you, you you kind of can poke fun at the fact that man you don't know what I had to do to get through uh, <laughs> to get this information I'm about to tell you and, and make fun but I suffered I suffered for it you know <laughs> yeah I, like I say blessed blessed with interest is how yeah. I like to put it I, I have interest I'm, uh, enough I for that topic so <laughs> that I'll I defer to you you can tell me about the the awesome study and then just you know tell me what the rep range should be and uh, what the formula is and uh, you know I'm, more, I'm I'm interested enough to give it a shot but I'm not interested enough to sit there with the, <laughs> with those books you know um so for sure so that kind of like that launched you you know into uh, powerlifting using powerlifting using all you know different tools mixing it with your kettlebells um you know and yep. uh, also for for a big guy anybody who's seen i've reposted a bunch of your videos playing around with kettlebells and doing things like cossack squats and moving around you, you know you've kept your flexibility especially for somebody who's working a lot of strength you always manage to uh, keep that flexibility, that mobility, so you can move well on the mat and still move like a martial artist. Um, have you found that a struggle over the years, especially as you ramped up and you lift quite heavy? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked because this is a, an, an argument that I've had many times. Mm -hmm. uh, the <laughs> I haven't found it as difficult, and I think a lot of that has to do with my expectations. Right. Because somewhere along the line in the martial arts community, uh, there was this idea that was born that the fitness required for being a fighter mm -hmm. was completely different and unrelated to any other kind of fitness. And, uh, and as a result, it, it provided this kind of uh, way out of having to be in shape for it. Yeah. Uh, and, and, there, and uh, now it's like, well, if you're, if you're small and a martial artist, you have an excuse to be weak. And if you are, and if you are a heavyweight martial artist, then you have an excuse to be slow and uh, only be able to last two minutes in a round. Right. And uh, and it's and it's completely 
it's completely uh, ridiculous as far as I'm concerned because you can you can take examples from a wide variety of other sports of guys who are who are just as big as heavyweights as, as heavyweights in MMA or uh, ultra heavies in jujitsu that that are in incredible shape and can move extremely quickly. Yeah. Uh, I've actually done a I've actually done a lot of uh, study on the uh, NFL combines over the years. Yeah. Uh, for, for this uh, particular topic, because it's one of my favorite examples, you see some of these, uh, you see some of these uh, NFL combines where you look at the forties that the running backs are running, and you look at the forty times that the offensive linemen are running, and there's about a twenty percent increase in their body weight, but only about a ten percent drop off in their forty times. Wow, well, that's incredible. And you got you got guys that weigh three hundred fifty, three hundred sixty pounds that are running five or sub five. 40 yard dashes and uh but you know it's you're you're big so you must be slow it's like no you're you're slow because you're slow yeah that's it you know (laughs) i I, like we talked about your you know your pull-ups before and everybody always tells me things like you know i've always have you know like tall guys or whatever you know of course as we're talking (laughs) about something well that requirement's not really fair because you know i'm so tall as your height is uh interesting it's interesting in the sense that yes, it's a factor. It's it's interesting. There's some you know it's it's worth discussing, um, but it's also irrelevant. Uh, if you're yes. tall and want to do 20 chest bar pull ups, just fucking do 20 chest bar bar pull ups. Um, there is a path. Yeah, there's yeah. a path to get there. Uh, just like there's a path to get anywhere, regardless of whatever. So you know, it's like if you're small. And you are going to do jujitsu against a guy who's about your technique level and uh, he's twice your size. There's a path to whooping his ass. Um, You know, it's interesting that you're much smaller than your opponent, but it's irrelevant (laughs) in the sense that it's it's not not easy. Only determining factor in the outcome. So, but I find if, you know, if you don't want to do something, then all of those little things that may be moderately interesting become overwhelmingly interesting to you. You know, like uh, oh. we won't say his name, but a, you know, a kettlebell expert, uh, I think it was last year or something said some ridiculous thing like uh, Turkish getup is a useless movement and no one ever became a badass doing a Turkish getup. So of course, all of the lackeys that follow that guy who, let's say they don't like Turkish get-ups, they all wrote, right on, it's a fucking stupid move, and I knew you didn't have to do that. About time somebody said this. Yeah, it's about time. I've been waiting my whole life for somebody to shit on Turkish get-ups. Um, it's, like, <laughs> it's an exercise where you move through all three planes and have to stabilize a weight. What kind of a thumbnail well, moron do you have to be to think that stabilizing a weight through all three planes of movement is useless? But it's like, it's just a thing well, that people, it's like people just like to say these definitive statements in fitness without even thinking, just so they can polarize their group and give people an excuse to do something or not to do something. Um, well, it's, it, it's like you it's said, a, it's a it's it's very it's natural thing, but it's not the thing. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very natural thing for somebody to want to be in on something that other people aren't in on. Yeah. And that's, that's how a lot of kind of, uh, fitness cults get started. But uh, it, it, like I say, it really comes back to achievable middle ground because if you are a heavyweight, then it is true that at the extremes, you won't have the gas tank or the speed of, of, of a of a person who weighs 140 pounds. 
Yeah. But that's at the extremes. That doesn't, that doesn't mean you can't be much more explosive and have much better conditioning than you have. Right. It's like, uh, it, it's like the difference between the, between the genders. Yep. You know, a lot of guys, a lot of guys like to say that, uh, you know, well, of course I'm stronger than her. She's a, she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Like, well, yes, at the extremes, the, the, the weakest men on earth will be stronger than the weakest women on earth. And the strongest men on earth will be stronger than the strongest women on earth. But that's at the extremes. The yeah. extremes have nothing to do with you. No, exactly. I know a lot of, you know, average guys walking around. Uh, I know plenty of women that will whoop their ass in just about any kind of physical yeah. contest. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, be, being born a man doesn't mean it's your birthright to be stronger than every woman on earth. Nope, there's it's, a nice it, and a lot, and a lot of people, uh, like I say, a lot of people just kind of, oh, well, I'm a heavyweight, so I, I must be slow and, and, uh, gas out after two minutes. Well, no. Yeah. Just because, just because at the extremes, yeah, you might not have the same gas tank as a bantamweight. That doesn't mean it can't be much better than it is. Yeah. No, I so, think that's, that's an excellent uh, point. It's what, super interesting. And, uh, I think it just, it speaks to how we kind of get locked into those things that we, that become kind of dogmatic in our head. Like we think that way because we kind of were told that from a young age that like, Oh, well the heavyweights are slower, but man, you know, if they hit you, you go out, you know? So you're like, Oh, heavyweights, they have all the power and none of the speed. Well, no, that's not true. There's heavyweights that move really fast, but it just becomes like kind of locked in. Yeah. And it's, and, uh, it, but it's one of those things where if you are, if you're competing at, uh, at 140 pounds in jujitsu, mm-hmm. what's going to catch your opponents off guard more than you being strong as hell, right? If you're, mm-hmm. if you're a heavyweight and you put a lot of effort into having a great gas tank mm-hmm. and being really flexible and really explosive and you, and you explore these things. And, and put a lot of effort into into developing them. What's mm-hmm. what's going to give you an edge over your competition? Yeah. The things that heavyweights don't usually have. Yeah, exactly. Being so, yeah, being well rounded, which is something yeah. that when we that's that's what we talk about all the time in Agatsu, right? That's what we're building. We're building good generalists. So, um, and you know, one of the reasons why, which you know, a lot of people now that they've just heard is uh, we launched uh, your new uh, course, which is the Agatsu uh, Strength and Speed course. And, um, it's part of the reason that we, we launched it apart from the fact that, you know, you've got all this great material and great research and, you know, had all the success with it, um, is we've always encouraged people to go to the barbell and we've always told people the barbell is the king, you know, it's the king for strength. Kettlebells are great. Indian clubs are great. Maces are great. All these different things that we have, we have a joint mobility program. Uh, we, we train body weight exercises, but really to complete that kind of circle, um, we do work also max strength and we want to do it in such a way that doesn't take away from the other things that we're doing. We want it to complement it. And uh, the barbell training, the way that you do it and the way that you've put it together in the program really does that. Um, so we recently launched it and it's kind of exploded uh, to a really interesting degree because I think uh, people were just blown away. People that kind of thought that it was going to be some power lifting, um, we're like, Oh, cool. You know, I'll get some tips on my techniques. And then they realize the depth of the course and realize that, man, this is not just like powerlifting, like, Oh, I'm going to go do this. And maybe I'll become a power lifter. This is, you know, making use of powerlifting to fill in those gaps in your training and really maximizing, um, the knowledge that is out there that you've been highlighting that people can use these programs, this approach, all this great research that's kind of been largely ignored. 
uh, for a long time or presented in such a way where it's kind of like over the Russian thing is so overhyped and so like, you know, kind of silly. Um, now they can finally get it and get it in a, in a way that's going to be understandable and really meaningful for them and uh, give them what's missing in their training. So we did uh, the first course in Montreal. And people just went crazy uh, doing it and going back to like those kind of lifts and, and seeing the value of the box squat and, and everything. And uh, now it's kind of exploded. Uh, you and I are going to be heading to Asia in uh, December, right? It's Hong Kong, right? Yeah, I think awesome. in December. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. We've got uh, Mississauga coming up. Yeah. Uh, which is Pretty close to sold out, I think you said. Mississauga, uh, yeah, Mississauga. We'll discuss after. I'm, we, I think we have to cap it because it's already going to be a jam. It's jam packed. So Mississauga is pretty much a sellout. Um, there is a closed military course that is now confirmed. So we're going to do a course and bring it to the military, which I'm super excited for because. Uh, well, one, I'm a petty little man, and I like to tell people that uh, when I was right, I told the military. See, Many, many years ago, because it's many years now that I've been working with the military and law enforcement in different places, um, but I told the military years ago when they asked me about a recommendation for somebody for Olympic lifting, I said, "You, my recommendation is you don't. And they said, well, you know, everybody wants to do it. And I told them, yeah, you guys have no business doing Olympic lifting. You maybe see the same soldier once a month. There's no way you can meaningfully teach them how to clean and jerk or snatch. It's a recipe for disaster. You're just busting bodies. And what you really need is to show them something that they can use, get stronger, get, you know, more fit and get, you know, even more useful, uh, you know, than, than they are and build them up, not tear them down. And uh, I told them, I said, years from now, you're going to be doing, you know, strongman training. You're going to be doing all the kind of stuff that we do in Agatsu. And uh, you could be years ahead if you would just take my advice now. And uh, so the person I was speaking to laughed. Uh, yeah, I know what you're saying and it makes sense, but you know, man, this is what the people here want to do. And I told him, it's okay. It's okay. Listen, if you, if you're still in your job years from now, when you guys make the switch, I will uh, happily remind you of this conversation and uh, you can tell me you were right, Sean. And, uh, I'll enjoy that. So I'm stoked that we're going <laughs> and we're going to show them some awesome stuff. And I think we're going to get them moving in a direction. It's going to be a lot safer for their guys and girls. Um, so that's cool. We're doing that. There's going to be another Toronto one that's going to come up in the new year. And also uh, we have a Singapore date that people are throwing around. So it's going to be a lot for people that are just listening. What are some of the things that are covered in the course in the strength and speed course? Well, it, as you said, it's uh, it's not strictly a powerlifting course because uh, my specialty has always been uh, using the foundations of powerlifting for uh, developing non-strength athletes. So it, I think that's a big part of the reason why it appealed to our uh, students at Agatsu because we've always had kind of an outside perspective. Yeah. I, I know that uh, like when I like when I first started uh, teaching the kettlebell courses, one of the first things I noticed was how surprised people were, how many body weight and mobility techniques we were teaching in what was supposed to be a kettlebell course. Yeah. And uh, providing providing a, a providing a, a wider picture of what it means to train with a kettlebell, and yeah. that's kind of what I what I what I set out to create uh, with the breakdown of what we teach in the powerlifting course. It's not necessarily just about okay, this is how you deadlift, this is how you bench press, this is how you box squat, all these sorts of things. It's about uh, taking those things and making them usable. 
Right. So it's it's not just about the the techniques themselves because I'm sure the people that that show up to the course they're gonna they're gonna get a lot of great pointers on their own technique, but I also want to give them the tools to break down those movements for other people because a lot of these movements become highly individualized later mm-hmm. on. Well, that's like one thing you're, you're saw you going around the room. It's like you had some people that were like, yeah, I know I, I've, I've box squatted before. I've done this before. But then when you come by and you were like two people at the same station and you're like, no, your foot right here. And they were like, oh, that's so different. That's that's what it's supposed to feel like. And then the same guy, and then another guy would go and try and do the exact same thing you showed. And you were like, nah, not for you. For you, more like this. Yeah. So it's it's uh, it's really about not uh, like I say it's about uh, giving them the tools to help with their own technique, but also giving them kind of a glimpse behind the curtain as far as okay, well, why did I tell you to do this and you to do that? These are right. the factors that contribute to this movement working differently for different kinds of leverages. Or okay, this guy his you know his hips are too tight to do the deadlift this way. Let's uh, let's pull that in and this is what you need to do for mobility, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then uh, also with the programming side of things, because the when it comes to programming, 99% of the uh, fitness industry is, well, this program worked well for this guy, so do it. And uh, that's, that's about it. Yeah. And if it doesn't work, okay, well, it's, uh, but again, a lot of people, they start looking at these things out of context. Like they, they're, they're getting a program off of somebody who is just way further down the road than they are. And you may be able to learn things from that program. But again, it, it, that, what got him, uh, what got him to where he is, isn't necessarily where he started. So, right. uh, the, the tools to, the tools to say, okay, well, this is why this type of programming is typically used to produce these kinds of results. But if this isn't working, this is probably why, and this is what you can introduce instead. So it's, it's giving them the tools to essentially go off and, and, uh, and do what I do as opposed to me just handing them a program and saying, okay, here's the program. Hopefully it works for you. Thanks for coming to my course. Yeah, I think the combination of what you're doing in the programming lectures and really transmitting all that awesome stuff from like the Soviet sports science and making it uh, palpable, making it understandable, and then ultimately something people can turn around and use for themselves and use for their clients is just awesome. I, I can't think of another resource, another place that they can go and, and get that kind of information delivered in such a useful way, um, along with the technique tips, which is awesome. And uh, we're not just doing lifting, we're also, there's some a speed component, there's a body weight component. There's some different things that are going on in that course. Yeah, it's uh, well, we call it the strength and speed course. And this is another thing that's kind of near and dear to me is the, the idea of speed and explosiveness training. And Mm -hmm. well, first of all, what those terms actually mean uh, working with different kinds of velocities for different kinds of athletes uh, is, is much more comprehensive than just saying, okay, well you want to be fast. So do Olympic lifts or you want to be fast. So just try to run fast. It's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but uh, that's why it, I wanted to include that kind of stuff in the course. It's like, okay, what does explosive strength mean? Uh, and more, more importantly, why do you need to be explosive? Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people, like I say, when they when they think of uh, speed, they think about doing things like uh, like Olympic lifting, which favor people who are explosive, but don't necessarily make somebody more explosive just by mm-hmm. doing them. 
Right. So it's uh, it, all this, all this stuff gets, uh, gets very complicated, but like I say, what I've, what I've tried to do with the course and uh, it's uh, getting a good response so far is to once again, take those, take those very complicated uh, ideas and, uh, and break them down into something that actually makes sense and is tangible that you can use. Well, I think it's awesome. And I think it's a, it's a great, you know, compliment to all of the other things that we do in Igatsu and, and, now, you know, really somebody going through all the different programs um, has the opportunity to really round out their training. And because it's all coming from inside the Agatsu family, everything is interconnected. Everything works together. You keep hearing, like in your course, you will hear things that are said in the kettlebell course. And you will hear things in the kettlebell course that are said in the mobility course. And that are also said in your course because... Um, a lot of times, you know, people or companies have all these different programs that they um, put out for, you know, other people, but the programs aren't kind of developed interconnected. They aren't coming from the same kind of training philosophy and same ideas. Uh, what the company has done is it's like, well, kettlebells are popular, so I'll hire somebody who's good with a kettlebell and they'll teach kettlebells. And then weightlifting is good, so yeah. I'm going to, you know, teach people how to do like barbell stuff and they'll hire another good barbell person. But the barbell person and the kettlebell person don't know each other. They never trained with each other. They don't have the same concepts and guidelines and ideas about training um, where we're working all from the same ideas and the same tra training kind of methodologies and touchstones. And, uh, you know, we've all built ourselves up with these things and being able to share the different components and show people how they're all interconnected. How it doesn't matter really what you're doing. Um, what matters is how you are applying uh, learning and the application of, of these things. Um, and that's what really can build an, an incredible generalist. You can get people that are very flexible, great mobility, uh, endurance. They got huge gas tanks and, you know, the strongest hell. And, uh, you know, to me, that's a really interesting generalist. Um, so I think this program is going to be awesome for that, for giving people a, a piece that's missing, um, which is, you know, which is uh, huge. And, uh, like I said, the response has been awesome. You've been putting out some really good tips, um, for video and we now have a back end also that includes some of the stuff uh that you've been talking about in courses so i think that's going to be really helpful for people what's your instagram account so if people that are listening and want to check you out because you're always posting uh really good and interesting uh you know um progressions and regressions and especially crazy ways to load things which is super fun <laughs> i appreciate that uh well the, my instagram is agatsu west so it's uh, A G A T S U W E S T. Uh, so people should and, follow you uh, on Agatsu West and check that out, and they can see like some awesome stuff. You do some really cool stuff with bands and chains, which we also teach in the course. So that's that's huge. People yeah, that's yeah, that's, out. Yeah, that's, uh, that's one of those things that's really caught on. I remember getting kicked out of World Health a few times twelve years ago for bringing my own chains from home, and now they're. <laughs> well, what's cool I, too is I think what's great for the course is people who uh, have been lifting for a while and maybe have done some powerlifting. They're going to get a deeper insight into what they were doing and what they can do people who have never done any of those kind of lifts are going to get a great foundation and see the value of them and how they can add it in and what they can get out of it. So, you know, that's huge. And, uh, I think it, it's really sure. something that's going to fill a blank. So fill a yeah, void. That's a lot of people's training. Well, that's certainly the hope. Yeah. That's, um, I'm having a lot of fun with it so far seeing, uh, seeing all the Agatsu people bench pressing. Yeah, actually, oh, you even got me bench pressing again. I've been bench pressed since the '80s. 
No, but what oh, you said also awesome. made a lot of sense. You know, you were telling me I do a lot of handstands and I'm always up in that position. I'm always pressing that way and in that position overhead. But, you know, you were like, when's the last time you pressed this way? I'm like, uh, well, push up or working on my plant. He's like, oh, that's not exactly the same. I'm like, oh, you're right. Okay. And, uh, you know, it just for structural balance uh, made a lot of sense. You know, it, it really did. Yeah, you should I go started, to do it, started to make everything feel kind of better. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's a very common thing. And it goes, it goes back the other way just as often. Like people who are involved in physical culture, uh, like they like the hand balancing and the kettlebells and stuff like that usually emphasize the overhead press. Yeah. And you know, some, sometimes for cultural reasons, avoid the bench press because they're afraid of not looking functional. Um, yeah, I think you're 100% some- right. I think people just like they're so quick to shit on, uh, you know, a technique because somehow they want to be, counterculture to the bodybuilding uh, you know exactly. approach so they 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 leave out a major aspect of their training which is well first of all maximal strength training for the upper body second pressing in a horizontal plane but uh it uh, then if you go to the other side of things people who only bench press and you know do shoulder press once in a while because they hope it'll help their bench press but don't really <laughs> emphasize it in the same way they they have their own kind of cocktail of muscular imbalances and and uh, immobility that result from that. So, uh, being able to uh, be able to uh, diversify uh, how you move and in what planes you engage resistance uh, makes a big difference, especially when it comes to non-strength athletes. Because as I said, uh, as as I always say, your your number one priority as a strength coach for a non-strength athlete, like a football player or volleyball player, whatever it is, mm-hmm. is to keep them playing the sport. Yeah. So if uh, if if you're overemphasizing a certain plane of movement or a certain exercise or, uh, or or crossing wires too closely to something they do all the time in their sport, and they get injured, you that's uh, that's a great way not to get hired again. So uh, balance balance is really everything. Yeah, I think I think that's huge. I think that's huge for athletes, and it's just huge for anyone who's you know training to improve their overall health and uh, their overall life. That's a massive thing, man. Well, I, listen, I got to thank you for coming on and for giving us so much time, answering some uh, great questions. People are going to check you out at Agatsu West on uh, Instagram, so they can follow some of your stuff. Um, they can always pop onto uh, the Agatsu Fitness um, Instagram and uh, you know check out some of the uh, things that we've posted uh, from courses with you. Go to agatsu.com for uh, dates for the upcoming uh, strength and speed course. Um, did you catch the fights last night? I did, yes. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> uh, sorry. Well, there was a bunch of fights and then there was like a mini riot. So, uh, yes. you know, yeah. What was, your, what was your favorite? Were you a big fan of the, <laughs> the, the ensuing riot after or, you know? I couldn't I believe it. I was staring at the, the screen. Like, it was the actual- way past my bedtime and I was freaking out. <laughs> Well, during the during the the uh, McGregor uh, Nurmagomedov fight, I I don't think I've ever been that stressed during a fight before. <laughs> I was it more it stressful was, than actually it, fighting. Uh, you know, it's close. <laughs> I, <laughs> it was wild for anybody who hasn't seen it, man. It was it was crazy. I've never seen it, and I used to uh, work for TKO ringside and call fights. I've never seen craziness like that. Yeah, it's well. I, I guess we're not too worried about spoilers at this point because by the time this airs, everybody will either heard about it or seen it. But, I, I, I uh, would be hard I, pressed to open up your social media and not see pictures of the finish and also videos of the riot. So yeah, 
Yeah, I so I what I uh, going into the fight, I I will admit I placed a bet on McGregor, mm-hmm. uh, and the reason I thought McGregor was going to win was that I felt that uh, Khabib was about as far ahead of Connor on the ground as as Connor was ahead of of uh, Khabib standing. Mm. But my thought was that my thought was that uh, at this point in their career that uh, McGregor's aptitude for bringing up his grappling and wrestling would have been uh, greater than Khabib's ability to improve his striking that much at this point. Mm-hmm. And I also thought that because Khabib had had a hard time uh, finishing A-level competition and had been uh, noticeably rattled by Michael Johnson in their fight, who I don't think hits quite as hard as Connor does, right. I figured that Connor's I figured that Connor would uh, would uh, have to stuff a few takedowns and maybe get held down for a round or two. But uh, I, I figure that the first time Connor stung him with that left hand, I, I honestly thought it's, uh, he would finish him. Mm-hmm. But uh, man, I got to give props to, to Khabib. I uh, my my uh, my brother and I were talking about it, and uh, his theory is that Khabib just kind of underestimated Michael Johnson and and uh, wasn't and uh, uh, wasn't expecting to get hit. Mm, and it's a uh, it's a it's a pretty powerful thing when you go into a fight with somebody who's that good a striker, just kind of expecting to be hit. Right. Uh, it actually reminds me of uh, Fabrizio Verdum uh, when he when he beat Fedor Emelianenko, and it was the first time Emelianenko had ever been beaten. And Verdum talked about how he knew Fedor was going to hit him hard and probably put him down. So there, <laughs> he was he was doing these crazy things like uh, like like spinning in a circle until he was dizzy, and then having to triangle choke guys. Like <laughs> he he uh, basically. He basically planned for being hit and being on the ground. Yeah, that's actually funny. And, you know, that uh, one of my one of my old coaches used to make us do, you know, like the dizzy Lizzie. Yeah, you, like put a baseball bat <laughs> down and you you run around it. Right? He would make us yeah. do that. We would run around like a bunch of times, and then you would, as soon as you lifted your head up, like as soon as you came up, someone would smack you, like hard across the face. So you were dizzy and you were hit, and then you would start sparring. <laughs> That was a different era of training for sure. <laughs> yeah, it was. A, yeah, now everything. Now when I walk into a gym and I see what they're doing, I just go, "Oh, that that's nice." <laughs> it was a little bit more pleasant. It was a wild fight, though. I really enjoyed it, and uh, I, 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 it's funny because I've been talking with my friends all day about you know him jumping out of the ring, and uh, it's kind of interesting. Like you really see everyone's personality, uh, you know, differences with their reaction to that. Uh, I think. For sure. He should not have jumped out of the ring after and gone after the guy. However, I understand why he did it. <laughs> so, and, uh, yeah, I, well, you know. we talked about this earlier where they, they have kind of encouraged this wild west sort of mentality when it comes to marketing and hyping fights. Yes. And nobody ever really stops to think that there might be a fighter who's uh, not in on the joke like uh, Connor is. Yeah, and also the, nobody right. seems to think that there might be repercussions of letting people's behavior be so bad and so at the edge of in a, like inappropriate. And then when it goes over the edge, then everybody looks at the fighter like, why on earth would you do that? Like, why would you? That's yeah. so stupid. It's like, well, um, yeah, it was stupid what they did. But didn't you kind of create a perfect storm for this activity? And it's true. You know, like, it's I mean, almost like, yeah. well, anything is excusable. You can say or do anything to hype a fight. But then you're expected right after, like, oh no, when the fight's over, then it's over. You shouldn't be upset about the. Well, that's because that's usually what it is, and it's it's tiresome to be honest. There's, I agree. See, I think it's silly. I don't. I don't like. 
I like I like watching martial artists, you know, with some honor facing each other and then may the best person win. I really don't want to see all this nonsense where it's just trash talk and, and garbage. So, you know, I get it. He, you know, he he wasn't uh, playing the, uh, hey, let's just have well, this huge well, and fight. What's yeah. unfortunate is that they could have it that way. Mm-hmm. They, they could have it that way. I mean, yeah. it's... It, if you were to tell me, well, the only way to the only way to sell one and a half million pay per views is to have trash talk, and and the numbers showed that, I'd be like, okay, and and to an extent they do, especially recently. Yeah. But you know who was one of the UFC's all time greatest pay per view draws? George St. Pierre. Yeah. Who yeah. never trash talked anybody except that except for that really awkward moment when they kind of asked him to go in and trash talk Matt Hughes. Yeah, yeah. And he still. <laughs> And he, and, he could, and he could still barely do it and still shook his hand afterwards and stuff like that. It was just painful, but yeah, yeah. He it, could still barely do for, it. For the, for the most part, you interview George and ask him what he feels about the upcoming fight. He's like, he's like, Oh man, like this, this is a really tough guy. I'm going to train really hard. He's <laughs> yeah. you know, what he, even, when he was fighting, even when he was fighting uh, Matt Sarah the first time they asked him what he thought about the fight with Matt Sarah. And this is a dude who, who was like, ranked number 25 in the welterweight division at the time. And he won a reality show to get that title shot. Yeah. And George still gave him all that respect. He still said, you know, he's better than me on the ground. Yeah. And, uh, he's I a really tough careful. guy. He's been doing this a long time. Like, yeah. So like that, that was George and he's one of their all time greatest pay-per-view draws. So yeah. they, they could have it that way. This is just easier. You know, yeah. tra- trash talking is, uh, it's a little bit more user friendly. An yeah, approach you to, to the lowest common me. denominator fan, and uh, you know it's like easy pickings, right? It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. So that's why that's why they do it. All right, man. Well, listen, it was a pleasure. Uh, you know, I can't wait to see you. I'm going to see you soon. Uh, I guess uh, for the Mississauga course, I'm going to see you for Mississauga. And yeah, wait, uh, then what we'll do is we're going to for those of you who are following on the Agatsu West uh, Instagram, and you're following the Agatsu uh, Fitness one. Um, if you're following and, uh, in December, when we head off to Hong Kong, you'll, uh, get, uh, some cool behind the scenes, uh, action of us, uh, tearing it up over there and, uh, showing everybody some, uh, some great lifting and some great, uh, techniques and passing on some, uh, wicked information. I will post this up once guys, once this thing goes live, you're listening to it. Um, you, there'll be a link underneath it also for you to check out dates for upcoming courses. So if you want to get together with Tyson and you want to do some training and uh, head out to one of these courses, um, you, the link will be with, uh, put up with this. So it'll be easy for you to find, easy for you to find upcoming dates. And remember, we're always adding new dates and locations all the time. And of course, if you want to host, Anywhere in the world, we just need bodies. We need people that want to learn, and uh, anybody who wants to learn, get a, get enough people together, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we will end up coming there. So thanks a lot, sir. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Pleasure. We'll see you again soon. All right, we talk soon.